Have you ever thought about what it means to publish your own story? What opportunities can it open up? The power of storytelling, the power of publishing these stories, exactly what kind of impact can they have? Welcome to the Possible Podcast. This is episode one of the first series. Really, this is all about bringing creative thinking into arts and humanities research. I'm Paul Drury-Brady, entrepreneur and residence across Durham University's Arts and Humanities faculty. I'm interested in community, collaboration, new connections, and making ideas matter. These ideas took root in Latin America through something called Cartanera Publishing. I asked Alex Flynn, someone who recently won a Durham University award for the quality of his research, to explain what it's all about. So Cartanera Publishing is kind of a very sort of lo-fi, low-cost way of democratizing access to literature. The context for Cartanera Publishing is Latin America, where books are like incredibly expensive. If you wanted to buy like some kind of academic book from an online bookseller in Brazil, you'd be looking at sort of half, perhaps, of a monthly minimum wage in, in Sao Paulo. So books are incredibly expensive. And Catanera's kind of first thing was really about democratizing access to literature. So making books available at a cheap price. And the way to do that is to just make the production costs really small. So Catanera actually started off in the wake of this massive economic crisis in 2001 in Argentina. And these two artists, like this writer and this more like visual artist, they wanted to start a publisher, but they couldn't because their bank accounts have been frozen. And they're like, well, how are we going to do this? And they look around at the crisis all around them, and what they can see is just cardboard, you know, everywhere. In a way, it's this kind of total symbol of, you know, something that is discarded from an economy, you know, something that has no value. And so they, what Cabinet of Publishers do is they use cardboard that has been recovered from the street as the binding for very sort of cheap and efficient photocopies of a text. And then they bind the A4 text with cardboard to create a book cover. And then each book cover is kind of individually kind of hand-painted and decorated. And basically, that's Catanera book. So that's the phenomenon that has spread, like, you know, across the world. This kind of very lo-fi, very quick and easy way to make not only the consumption of literature more accessible, but also the production of literature. Because when you take on creating a book yourself, you become the editor, obviously. So you get to decide what's published in it, what kind of text you publish, what kind of politics you put forward, what kind of stories that haven't been heard up till then can actually be put out into the public sphere. This research from Durham University got me really excited, bringing together art and activism, new ideas, reusing, recycling and remixing, a real melting pot of big ideas. My research is really kind of focused on the intersection between aesthetics and politics, kind of how, in a broader sense, political stuff happens and is expressed through kind of art, but also what's more interesting for me, like how what people do through art can actually influence politics, so kind of the other way around. When we were looking at this Catanera phenomenon, this explosion of activity that starts in Latin America in 2003 and then has kind of gone on to expand beyond Latin America and across the world. So people estimate that now there's like 250, 300 Catanera publishing collectives. It's kind of started in Buenos Aires, then gone to Sao Paulo, Ecuador, you know, Bolivia, but now into kind of like Korea, China, Mozambique, Angola, Germany, France, Spain. Okay. Cartanera publishing is clearly an international phenomenon, but what are the parallels to here? Are there actually shared experiences or impact between the Northeast and this global movement? 
the backdrop here is, you know, deindustrialization of the North, Margaret Thatcher's kind of policies around that. And Captain Eyre actually shares that kind of lo-fi, do-it-yourself spirit. And it also shares that countercultural background, you know, the idea of putting forward views that, you know, different to the ones that are circulating in mainstream. And of course, both Catanera and zine culture, you know, these are things that are both very easy to read and very cheap to buy. And because of this emphasis on making, like both with zine culture and Catanera, you know, you actually have to sort of get your hands dirty, sit down and make this stuff. You know, they both kind of foster community. They both foster sharing and collaboration. But, you know, all that said, the contexts are, you know, significantly different so obviously in the north of england in the 1980s the context was very different to argentina in like you know the turn of the millennium and there's this kind of idea about democratizing access to literature which i don't think zine culture was really that interested in because most of catanera is actually about publishing existing texts as opposed to self-publication so if you look at like the selection of catanera literature across latin america you know, you'll find Bukowski, you'll find Foucault, you'll find Isabel Allende, like important Latin American authors, you'll find children's literature, you'll find like, you know, the Petit Prince. It's about taking, in some ways, this big corpus of literature, which a lot of people in Latin America don't have access to, and making that available. And of course, the other big difference is the materiality of Catanera. So in Catanera, one of the most important things is the fact that the cardboard it's not like bought from a shop. It's not fake cardboard. It comes from the street. And the people who collect it from the street, like what in Latin America are known as waste pickers, so these are people that go around the street collecting recyclables from uh, the rubbish and then selling those recyclables to make a really, really basic living. These waste pickers, they are involved in the process of cartonera. So... The people who collect the items from the city's rubbish and recycle them, these are the same people that are involved in the production of Catanera books, the design of them, and also sometimes the actual composition of them. So like actually writing the texts or creating artwork that is in these books. So that's the other kind of big difference between Catanera and zine culture. Catanera brings together a lot of different types of actors. You know, as zine culture too, but it also cuts across levels of stigma in a way that zine culture might not. Alex told me that the collaboration and fluidity in this research made it so powerful. And here in the Northeast in the present day, living through this unsettling and uncertain pandemic, what are the lessons we can learn from determined publishers in the favelas of South America? It was born out of necessity. You know, cardboard was what was available. So that's what they used. So I think this idea of the fact that it's cheap, the fact that you make use of what you have right in front of you, that's really important. I think another thing that's really important about Catanera and makes an important statement about what's going on right now is its portability. And what I mean by that is that it's a model which you can adapt to whichever situation you're in. So maybe where you know we are right now, there isn't a ton of cardboard available, like a surface of cardboard but maybe there's a surfeit of something else. Maybe there's a different way to kind of use that mentality about just creating something out of, as it were, nothing and putting it out there. That's the kind of mentality that Kathaneda puts forward. And I think that that applies in these times when we're really having to pare back and just look at what's you know, most in our, in our proximity. The reason that Kathaneda can do that is because at heart, it's an artistic model. 
It's something that was created by artists. And it draws a lot on this artistic theory by this very important German artist called Joseph Beuys and his idea of social sculpture. So the idea of social sculpture is that you create something that will serve society and people can model it actively as it goes on. So this could be one of Boyce's most famous things was, you know, planting like thousands of trees as, a, as an artistic work because you're doing something to serve society and it's something that is organic, can evolve, and people can do with that model what they want. So that plasticity, that flexibility, that's one of the most important things about Catonera. There are certain shared, you know, principles about Catonera. So there's this idea about, you know, progressive views. There's this idea about democratizing access to literature. But beyond that, you can do whatever you want with that model. So if you want to create books that talk about this, that's what you do. If you want to create books that talk about that and you want to bind it not with cardboard, but you want to sort of bind it with rope, then that's what you do if that's what's near you. And it's that central plasticity, I think, that sort of adaptability that makes it really important in times like these when we all have to look at to realize what we want to do, we all have to look at just what's in our proximity to make it happen. This demands agile, adaptable and creative thinking in arts and humanities research. During these difficult times, do we perhaps need to challenge ourselves more? And what that means is that there's ever greater opportunity, I think, for people to put forward a counter message to that, which is something a lot more personal, a lot more articulated from a specific place and time that addresses and puts forward a specific message. So I think, as I was mentioning, Catanera started in 2003. There are over 250 collectives now in Latin America, and it really is spreading out. You know, like there's Catanera uh, publisher now in New York. There isn't one in the UK yet, but hopefully there might be one like soon. Um, spreading across Europe, like it's really something which captures the imagination of people. And in these times of precarity, I think it really strikes a chord with people. Back here in County Durham, I spoke to Lizzie Lovejoy, a local illustrator, writer and artist. She told me the zine scene in the northeast is growing thanks to such a diverse blend of creative people living here. And there's a real unique passion for making here and working during the pandemic. She thinks it's an ideal time to unleash that potential. I think it brings it all back, weirdly enough, to the physical again, despite the distance. Because zines are often very handmade. They're very, you know, self-stitched. You know, everything is created by one or two or three people. It's it's always a small number of people creating one thing and then sharing it to other people. So I think it brings ideas that affect one or two people and shares them around. So during a situation like this, where it's harder to reach people on a physical level, zines are really important for sharing ideas and explaining everyone's unique situation. Lizzie had some predictions for the future of zine making in the Northeast too. I think it's probably a great time for any crowdfunding and collaboration kinds of projects because more than ever, people are reaching out to others and trying to connect. Um, it was almost like when things were going on physically, we kind of forgot each other and forgot that we could talk to each other, whereas now everyone is trying to reach out to each other and trying to connect to each other. So I think it's an age of collaboration more than anything for zines and that more and more people will share the ideas that they had, especially with a shared experience like this, where everyone has a similar understanding of what's going on and yet at the same time has their own unique perspective to bring to it. More than anything, what gets opened, I, I keep coming back to this idea of community and collaboration, but that's what zines 
are really about. It's really a tool to communicate with people and to um, share ideas with people. And I think that's probably because um, I'm a I'm a dyslexic and neurologically challenged person. So sometimes it's hard for me to express verbally what I want to say um, and what I want people to know and learn and understand. Um, so things like zines where it takes it takes words and it takes information, but it does it in such a visual and hands-on way. I think it's just important to realize that self-publication is a valid thing to do. I know a lot of people are very scared of self-publishing anything because they feel like then publishers later on won't take them seriously. So I think as a creative person, a zine maker, a writer, innovator of any kind, don't be afraid to use your own initiative and just create, especially when you're stuck in isolation and there's so much going on in the world around us. Um, it's important just to keep putting out different things that you've created and ideas that you've generated. It's clear that there's so much excitement about the potential for impact today. But I wanted to speak to a Durham University researcher about the history of self-publishing and expression. Dr. Lois Burke was a residential research library fellow here last year, and she worked closely with collections of 19th century life writing held in the Palace Green Library collections. This meant she used the university's expertise to explore intergenerational life writing. Lois told me about her extraordinary research into creative writing by girls during the 19th century. Amazingly, many manuscripts had never been researched before. Her work was on homemade magazines, really. These titles made by a small youth community at a time when printing was really exploding. Many parallels to today's digital life. So it's also a time when women were mobilising for their rights alongside these technological developments. So we see the first female journalists, typewriters. So this period was a real hotbed for different ideas and different types of writing to flourish. And in a way, I see this as being not so different to new forms of writing that we see today and that we have seen since the 19th century, spurred on by technological advancements. So, I mean, what we're doing right now, <laughs> blogs, vlogs, social media. So these types of writing are like the manuscript writing that I look at very much about the author's identity or performance of an identity. So just how many 19th century writers of published or magazines would adopt a pseudonym, which is not so different from online pseudonyms and avatars that people create for forums, for example. So manuscript magazine making and scrapbooking were practices in which the writer's individual or kind of small group collective experience was paramount to the whole production. And also the same could be said for zine cultures and online cultures today. So the first thing that surprised me uh, was the kind of sheer complexity of these magazines and how actually utilising insights from lots of different disciplines can help us to understand them. So, for example, if I look at a poem written by a 16 year old girl in 1885 and it borrows heavily from a poem written by Walter Scott or Coleridge, and it was written in conjunction with her sister, and then it was circulated, but then collected by someone else years and years later. Thinking about how do I approach all of these different aspects of this one item? What do I look at first? Um, but that's a problem that literary studies is actually well primed for because we're sort of used to borrowing insights from history, cultural studies and sociology, etc. When these insights are combined, they can paint a really rich picture of how a particular culture functioned in a certain time and place. So the second thing that I was struck by is how manuscript writings, sort of by necessity, have to form their own rules and regulations. 
So some writers in the magazines that I look at set age limits on submissions. So in one magazine, submissions are considered to be class one if they were written by someone aged 19 or over, or class two for those younger than 19. Um, there's an element of competition in them. And curiously, for me, there are rules about what is deemed to be a good or a bad imitation of a published work. So my research shows that amateur youth publications always have a complicated relationship with imitation and originality or homage and subversion. So some of the manuscript magazines that I look at mock the idea of the sort of male-dominated literary industry. As you can imagine, at this point in history, a very high proportion of magazine editors and writers were, were men. But simultaneously, these manuscript publications also aspire to a level of literary greatness which has been set by these publications. So this is where I think my research intersects with the study of zine culture and fandom. I ran a zine-making workshop at the Durham Book Festival, and it was attended by members of the public of all ages. And in preparation for this, I'd made facsimiles of women's and girls' archival papers, so diaries and correspondence mainly, from Durham's Palace Green Libraries collections, and gave each workshop participant a folder containing these materials, uh, which related to a different individual represented in the collection. So Durham Book Festival kindly provided an array of craft materials to make zines, so pens and paper and also newspapers and magazines which could be cut up and used for collage. So it was a very analogue form of zine production. The idea was that uh, you could read and engage with these archival copies and riff off whatever you found interesting about your case study and create something new in a zine. I think this was particularly effective because the people at my workshop were genuinely interested in learning about their cultural heritage and about looking at local collections representing local people. And actually, none of the participants had looked at archival material before. And a lot of people didn't realise that they are absolutely allowed to look at Durham special collections. So that was really great. And it made me realise that zine culture is absolutely about community building. And that means that zines translate well into group contexts, uh, workshops and pedagogy. And yes, I was also thinking a bit about how much they intersect with subcultures and identity politics how they might deal with race, gender, class and age, which I'm particularly interested in. And these subjects were certainly pertinent to me as a young person who grew up and studied in, in Durham and in the northeast of England. Um, so that's my experience of research crossover and sort of personal crossover with scene making and zine culture. This English research really got me thinking. And I wonder what kind of impact self-publishing is having internationally. I spoke to Eric Howard, a respected community organiser and zine maker from Detroit. I believe that it's essential for a community to be creating and sharing its own media. For one, it's a, an important key to local wisdom, but also just in general, everybody has a media suite in their pocket at this point. Not everybody, but lots of folks, especially young people with their phones. And, and they're also relying very heavily on outside media sources to tell them about themselves, essentially, to, to write stories and inform them and others about the communities that they're from. And I think that even just with the tools that are in our pockets, we're in an age where, where we can not only record our own stories, um, but share our own stories. And it's an important way to help facilitate a community that's informed and engaged, um, but also writing a narrative for itself without relying on outside media sources to tell us you know, who we are and even more to tell other people who we are. Eric told me it's such a vital and important time for young creative communities around the world. It's unreal 
uh, opportunity right now. And because folks, especially right now, and we don't know how long this will last, but what we do know is that what we're learning right now in this moment is how interconnected really we all are and how we have a responsibility to each other to be informed uh, and engaged, right? So that we can behave in ways um, that are healthy and not just for ourselves personally, but especially during a pandemic, we realize how our healthy choices impact each other. I say that to say people are looking for new ways to connect with people, right? So the folks who are, you know, in the house and, and taking the time out, they they don't want to stop being social. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning about new platforms every day. Every day I'm having a meeting on a platform that I had, you know, either never heard of or, or not used in the past. And so the fact that, that people are willing to do that right now without saying, oh, I don't have that or I don't use that. I'd really rather not do it. And everybody right now is, oh, just tell me what I have to do. I'll download the app. You know, it's, it's a very different moment. In the same way, it creates a, a new moment for, for telling stories and, and, and for sharing with each other what we know. And, and what we feel. And so I think more than ever, digital means of, of communication are just critical right now for people, not only for sharing information, but also for being creative. If you have a show hanging right now, everybody knows the doors are locked. You know, what do we do about that? Obviously, a lot of institutions have ways of, you know, getting that work online, you know, digitally. But there's there's also ways that we can look to those institutions, see how they're getting the word out and and be able to do things that are very similar. And so my kids have been inspired by a zoo that's five hours from our house that we don't usually go to, but it's in Cincinnati. It's a great zoo. But every day at 3 p.m., you know, they come on live and you get to interact with some of the animals at their zoo. You get to type in and ask questions and things like that. We're not real big on, you know, keeping our kids in front of screens all day long. Uh, however, um, when it's coming to three o'clock and they want to see what's going on at the Cincinnati Zoo, um, they get to talk to people. We go to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra sometimes. We don't get to do it a lot, you know, but we do it, you know, every year, every couple of years. And uh, my daughter now is learning how to play the flute. Well, the other day, uh, she watched a rebroadcast that the Detroit Symphony Orchestra put up from last year. But uniquely, five of the people who were playing in that arrangement were online on the live broadcast on purpose. And she got to do questions and answers with them, talking to them about what they're doing. She got to talk to an actual member of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra uh, while watching a video together with them online. So... In the same way, our photographs, our stories that we're writing, local stories, stories about communities and struggles and values just really have a unique opportunity that print print is wonderful and, and it's important and we need to get things in each other's hands. And the other side of that is there's a digital side you know, behind it that while we're creating that work, it, it's just like a, it's another platform and another way to you know get the stories out. And the more innovative we are at doing that digitally right now, I think... Uh, not only do the more we get to see and share each other's work, but I think the healthier we get to be um, as a result because we're being fed. So this pandemic-inspired paradigm shift to digital ways of being is already starting. And Eric told me it's helping to foster powerful new international collaborations. I mean, it might be because it's about digital platforms, even though it's not about zines. So in, in August, I was able to go to a refugee camp in Dehesha in Palestine. And there's a center there, the Sarouk Centers. And they have an amazing collection of creative programs, ways that they're working with young folks. And a lot of the young folks in the refugee camp, you know, have, have had traumatic experiences, you know, maybe even dealing with PTSD. And they're working through these things uh, creatively through media making, video, photography, dance. And uh, right before this call, um, I hung up with a call from them and we're setting up a collaborative like a Google Hangout. We'll either do it on that or on Zoom where dancers from their center in the refugee camp 
are going to do a face-to-face with breakdancers from here in Southwest Detroit. And I think we're going to pick about three artists each um, to teach each other uh, Dabki, which is a traditional form of Palestinian dance, and breakdancing, you know, and hip-hop, uh, you know, maybe some JIT and some other work. So talking about new ways of interacting digitally, I have to talk to my neighbors three blocks over, you know, digitally right now. Well, ironically, if I want to talk to somebody in Palestine, it's the exact same process right now. And so while we're being separated from each other, from the people who are very close, I think it's also making the world smaller and bringing us closer to the people who are very far. And I, I just, I really look forward to what it's going to be like next week or in two weeks, you know, when we nail down the logistics, what it's going to be like to watch hip hop folks from Detroit teaching folks who are practicing Dabki in Palestine and, and vice versa to have this exchange, you know, for people to dance. And, you know, maybe Azine, you know, can come out of something like that. Back here in the Northeast, I decided to explore some of these ideas with Teresa Easton, an artist and printmaker based in Newcastle. She explained austerity and cuts to arts funding, first drove her towards zine making. For over about a year and a half now, I've been connecting with some young people in Durham who go to Durham Sixth Form College. And they were interested in printmaking, more kind of underground subculture artwork. And I wanted to sort of talk to them a little bit about trade unionism and the kind of activism that I do. So we came together at the Reminders Association at Red Hills, that beautiful building on the hill. And there we kind of gathered information from the building, had a tour, got those kind of stories from the artwork that's in the building and started to do printmaking and zines. And then since then, we've met up every sort of two weeks at the Sixth Form College to make zines about all sorts of things the young people are interested in, climate change, emergency stuff that take part in the, the Friday afternoon school strikes. Some of them were interested in veganism, some were interested in sort of queer culture. So the zines were a good way of sitting down, chatting with each other, talking about what you're going to do at the weekend. I'd bring my ideas in, they'd bring theirs. And now the, the, the group's just poodling on by itself. There's meet up do the thing, introduce new young people, and it's lush. It's a really nice way of working. And then I guess the most recent project I've been doing is in Shildon in County Durham. And that project was commissioned by Northern Heartlands. And they were really interested in drawing out a story of two almost forgotten key members of the brass band, Heritage. Teresa explained self-publishing is an ideal way to bring marginal cultures together. I think zines are interesting because they do, you know, they can sort of have the shared culture, but they also have these kind of subgroups within those shared cultures. So you have sort of particular groups within the zine community, whereas the queer community, the vegans, who kind of talk to each other and share each other's stories and experiences. And then that kind of gets disseminated into the wider community so then they can have this kind of learned experience. And in terms of the role it plays now, you know, where we are now, I think it's got a really important role because zines don't just have to be hard copies. They don't just have to be like almost ephemera, things that you, you read, you pick up, you pass on to somebody else. They can also be um, digitally done. And zines and self-publishing are a really powerful way to make and create hyper-locally too. County Durham's an interesting place in terms of the young people I've connected with and even some of the families I've connected with in Peter Lee. Because we have access to the internet and we can have this you know, almost international worldwide view of things, that's all very well, but it's not that tangible sometimes. 
And I think what's interesting is when people are making their zines locally, what they always kind of come back to is that kind of that personal experience and that kind of wider friends, the friends in, the, in, in their sort of space, their neighbours, those kind of things which are familiar to them on a day-to-day basis, those kind of things feed into their zines. So although I can be chatting with, say, some young people about, I don't know, a particular dance craze that's come out of South Korea and, you know, the, old, the young kids are doing it and copying it. When it comes down to it, when they're actually doing their zines, they tend to do their zines on the reflection of the things that they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes that can be a little bit depressing because some of those, those experiences are hard. You know, some of the kids in Peter Lee were struggling just to get out and meet their friends in the evening because the bus has stopped at a certain time. So that was reflected in the zine, even though we were talking about something like the Apollo Pavilion. But we were talking about the Apollo Pavilion and I was talking about all the different events that had gone on there. And a lot of these kids couldn't get there because there was no buses, there was no transport. So for all the, the, these young people have, from what I experienced at their age, they have a much more kind of broader outlook worldwide because they can access these stories and things happening around the world. When it comes to them doing their zine that's reflecting their ideas, they do tend to be much more local things, even when it comes down to climate change. You know, the young people who made a zine on the fact there's no planet B, they were referring to things that were happening locally in Durham, whether it was, you know, lack of recycling facilities, whether it's roads that they were going to be built that they didn't want built, um, lack of um, money going into infrastructure so they can get around Durham a lot easier. Um, I think I was really struck by that. Though self-publishing is nothing new, but it is something that has a bright future, both here in Durham and around the world. A way to bring people together on a very local level and also make big global connections too, creating and making stories, community and impact.